is God's inheritance and secured with the Spirit. Claimed with God's claimed as God's inheritance and secured with the Spirit. And we're going to take another trek this morning into the upper Alps and mountain peaks of God's glorious grace. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes captures this when he says, If you cannot travel, remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is more glorious than all else that you could ever see. Get a view of Christ, and you have seen more than mountains and cascades and valleys and seas can ever show you. Thunders may bring their sublime uproar and lightnings, their awful glory. Earth may give its beauty and stars their brightness, but all these put together can never rival Christ. Amen? And here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks of the spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Christ, and we've already looked at the first four over previous weeks. We were chosen to be holy. We've been predestined to be adopted. We've been redeemed, forgiven, and set free from sin's penalty and power and ultimately from its very presence. We've been given the inside scoop on God's plan to wrap up all of human history, and now today, number five and six, we've been claimed by God to be his inheritance. And we've been sealed, we've been secured by his Holy Spirit. And all these come to us in Christ. Uh, If you remember, verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence. And nine or ten times Paul makes reference, uses this little phrase, in Christ or in him, in the beloved. And so what he's saying is that all these blessings come to us only because We have been united with Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, we would get not one of these blessings. But all of them come to us because God has united us with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. When we become Christians, we don't merely receive a benefits package from Christ containing forgiveness, new life, new hope, and so on. We receive Christ himself. And Rankin Wilborn adds, the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any benefit the gospel brings, is the gift of God himself. Every spiritual blessing that God gives us, he has given us in Christ. Christ is the fountain, and our union with him is the fountainhead from which all blessings flow. So why then, brothers and sisters, why then would we look for God's blessings anywhere else than in Christ. Is that not true? Let's read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14 as we begin this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And we could add to the saints who are in Woodstock and are faithful. By extension, the Holy Spirit is writing to us this morning. Grace to you and peace from the Lord, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he enumerates them, six of them. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which grace he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him or to sum up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then verses 11 to 14 we'll, we'll be focusing this morning. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, or it could be we have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are in the upper Alps of your glorious grace this morning. And some of us probably can't breathe very well up here because we're not used to these glorious altitudes. Some of us think we've seen these Alps before, these peaks before, and they're boring to us. Holy Spirit, would you please help us this morning? Awaken our dull, sleepy hearts and minds to see the glories of God, the glories of Christ, we pray. None of us will ever see anything of any lasting value unless you do your illuminating work in us. Father, there are some of us here who have never truly seen these glories at all. We may have heard them numerous times, but God, we pray, do the miracle of the new birth this morning. For those who have heard and yet never seen, never truly tasted, Lord, may this be the day when some of them sitting here would experience for the first time what it truly means to belong to you because of your amazing grace be adopted into your family and to be able to call you Abba, Father. To be set free from the guilt and condemnation of their sin because of the redemption that is theirs, that can be theirs in Christ Jesus. And to know the security of being claimed by you as your inheritance and your treasured possession. Heavenly Father, please do that work in us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So point number one is blessing number five, and that is we have been claimed by God as his inheritance. In verse 11, Paul writes, in him we have obtained an inheritance, we have been made an inheritance. And the very first question that arises is whose inheritance is it? Is it our inheritance that we have obtained, or has God made us his inheritance, and in the original Greek, it is ambiguous, which it is. Now, both are clearly taught in the Bible, and so both are true. For example, in 1 Peter 1.13, or 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, God has given us the new birth into an inheritance 
that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So the Bible clearly speaks that we have an inheritance awaiting for us. But the Bible also tells us that God's about God's inheritance in us. In fact, just a few verses down in verse 18, Paul will refer to the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So the Bible speaks about both of these, our inheritance and God's inheritance of us. So which is it here? Well, we're going to face the same question down in verse 14 when it speaks about the word possession. In the ESV in verse 14, it says, until we acquire possession of it. Again, the Greek is ambiguous and just states until the redemption of the possession. So whose possession is it? Well, the ESV says, the Holy Spirit, in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. They take it that way. The NIV, if you have an NIV in front of you, says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So they take it God's way. So which is it? Well, again, both interpretations are biblically accurate and true. So it's not a matter of which is true. It's just the question, which one does Paul mean here? And without being dogmatic, I think what Paul means here is that we are God's inheritance in verse 11, and we are God's possession in verse 14. And the main support for this interpretation is the Old Testament background to both of these two concepts of inheritance and possession. So listen to a couple passages from the Old Testament about God choosing Israel as his treasured possession. We'll start with that word, the word at the end of verse 14, possession. But God choosing Israel as his possession. And then how those same thoughts are re-expressed in the New Testament about God taking believers today as his possession. So this word possession, first of all, in Exodus chapter 19, and this is when the children of Israel are at Mount Sinai. And some of you just finished your study in the book of Exodus, so this will be fresh on your minds. And God says to the Israelites, there at Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that was exodus 19 then in deuteronomy chapter 7 the lord says you are a people holy to the lord your god for the lord your god has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth Psalm 135, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob, that's Israel. The Lord has chosen Israel for himself as his own possession. And then when we come to the New Testament, Peter picks up on this thought in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And addressing his Jewish and Gentile believers, he writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right out of Exodus 19, right? 
He goes on, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So that's the Old Testament background of the, of the word, the idea of possession. Now what about the word inheritance from verse 11? Just a couple Old Testament passages again. 1 Kings 8, verse 51 This is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And he prays to the Lord. These are your people and your inheritance, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. And then when we come into the New Testament, Paul picks up on this in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. So it appears to me that Paul is drawing on these Old Testament themes God's choice of Israel as his inheritance and his treasured possession. And then telling the Gentile Christians there in Ephesus and telling us here in Woodstock in 2023, you in Christ, you have been claimed by God to be his inheritance. Ponder that, brothers and sisters. Do you want to feel loved? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, you have been claimed by God as his inheritance. The God of the universe owns and rules over everything. He has thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels who have never once questioned his authority or failed to obey his every command. Talking about the holy angels. He has a beloved, perfect son with whom he is well pleased and whom he has never been disappointed for one moment. So why in the world, why in the world would he want the likes of us to be his inheritance? Why? Can it be anything in us? Is there anything that we have to offer him that he's lacking? Isn't the only possible and plausible explanation to be found in him and his gracious and loving purposes? Why why would he choose us? Why would he want us to be his inheritance? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 11. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Because we've been predestined according to his purpose. And just like back in verses 4 and 5, predestination looks back to eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when God purposed these things to be. And in his love, he set his affection on us. And he chose us. And he predestined certain ones to be his inheritance. And this wasn't capricious or random at all. 
but it was according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the fourth time in this one long sentence, verses 3 to 14, that Paul has used this phrase, according to. Back in verse 5, he said, everything he has done is according to the kind intention, the good pleasure of his will. In verse 7, he says, it was according to the riches of his grace. In verse 9, again, it was according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ. And here in verse 11, it's according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel, the deliberation of his will. John Stott writes, this whole passage is full of reference to God's will, God's good pleasure, God's purpose, and to the plan or program in which these have been expressed. Paul could hardly have insisted more forcefully that our becoming members of God's new community was due neither to chance nor to our choice, but to God's own sovereign will and pleasure. This was the decisive factor as it is in every conversion. Not that we just sit back and do nothing, brothers and sisters. Verse 13 makes it crystal clear that we have to hear the gospel. And every one of our friends who come to know Christ needs to hear the gospel. And then people must put put their faith in Christ. They must believe in Christ, as verse 13 says. Stott goes on. Let no one say, therefore, that the doctrine of election by the sovereign mercy and will of God, mysterious as it is, makes either evangelism or faith unnecessary. The opposite is the case. It is only because of God's gracious will to save that evangelism has any hope of success and faith becomes possible. The preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, when you and I share the gospel with others, that's the very means that God has appointed by which he delivers people from blindness and bondage and brings them to be set free and to believe in Jesus. And that's how he causes his will to be done. So this fifth spiritual blessing is that God chose us. Indeed, he predestined us to be his treasured inheritance. Brothers and sisters, is he not a God full of grace and incalculable kindness to us? A grace that flows invincibly and unceasingly from his heart toward needy, helpless sinners like you and me. Some of you dads, when asked what you wanted back on Father's Day, responded with something like, more than anything, I just want to be with my family. And if we have that kind of affection, sinful fathers as we are, multiply that by a few billion times and we'll begin to understand what our Heavenly Father's affection toward us is. Brothers and sisters, he has claimed you to be his treasured possession, his inheritance. Point number two will be blessing number six. And that is that we have been secured with the spirit. This is in verse 13 and 14. 
if you've ever had to certify or authenticate some official documents for certain kinds of transactions or dealings, then you've probably seen some kind of official seal attached to some of your documents. And I have one here. This is one we had to do in our, in our adoptions, a seal from the state of Georgia. And throughout much of human history, seals have been used for various purposes, sometimes just to authenticate something or to certify its genuous, genuineness. Other times a seal is used to mark something out as secure and not to be tampered with it. Or it may be to denote identification or ownership. And you know what? Let's read verse 13 because none of this makes sense unless we're aware of what verse 13 says. So verse 13 says, In him, you also, you Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul is talking about being sealed, about a seal. And one, of a, one great example of this is in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And if you remember the story of Esther and Haman, his, his, and the Jews, and Esther becoming the queen. Well, in chapter 8, King Ahasuerus is speaking with Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew. And he says to them, we've hanged Haman on his gallows. I've given Haman's mansion to you. But now, in order to protect your people from the genocide, which is scheduled for the month of Adar, just several months down the road, listen to me. And then he tells them, write an edict with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so Mordecai wrote, in the name of the king Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's ring. So sealing is something big, brothers and sisters, something official, something that carries a lot of weight. And so what Paul is talking about here in being sealed in verse 13 is something big and magnificent. So here in verse 13 of, of Ephesians, who is sealing whom? What is the seal? And what does the seal mean? Well, the first question, who is doing the sealing? God is doing the sealing. And it's a bit, it's a bit unclear exactly. It's implicit here in verse 13. But in a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Paul makes it very clear when he says, God has put his seal on us, same word, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a down payment, which is the same word as guarantee here in verse 14. So God is the one who seals. Now, whom does he seal? Well, here in the context, it'd be the Ephesian believers, right, who have believed and trusted in Christ. But by extension, it's, it's all of us who have trusted in Christ. God seals us when we've heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed in Christ. Well, what does he seal us with? What is the seal? And th this is remarkable. Because the seal is not merely a physical mark of ownership, like, like a signet ring or a name tag. God hasn't simply tagged us at the ticket counter with the Holy Spirit's name and address and said, I'll see you at baggage claim in heaven. No, the seal is a person. And it's not just any person. God didn't send his butler to be our seal. He gave us himself as the seal in the person 
of his Holy Spirit. So what does this mean that God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit? Well, the seal itself is a mark of ownership. In giving you his Holy Spirit, God has marked you as his own. The Holy Spirit in your life is the mark of God's ownership of you, that you belong to him and he will never let you go. But it's more than mere ownership here, isn't it? Paul goes on to say, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, then in verse 14, who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance. Now, the Greek word behind guarantee was used of earnest money, a down payment on a purchase. It's the first installment with the guarantee that the rest will follow. And what is the Holy Spirit the first installment of? What does his presence in our lives guarantee? Well, Paul says it's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. So the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the pledge of all that God has promised to us. It's the absolute guarantee that everything God has promised to us, we will certainly receive. That's what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. So this is Trinitarian eternal security, brothers and sisters, or we could say eternal security in the Trinitarian degree. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned here in verse 13 and 14. The Father who seals us, he's also the one who in eternity past, he chose us, he claimed us to be his inheritance. And then he redeemed us, he purchased us at the price of his own son's blood. Do you think he would ever be willing to lose what he has purchased at that price? Never. Of course, that brings Jesus into it. And Jesus is the one in whom God seals us. He seals us in Jesus, in Christ, verse 13 says. And then here we find out in these verses that it's not just the second person of the Trinity who's part of the guarantee God gives us, but it's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, God seals us with the Holy Spirit to guarantee that he will accomplish all that he has begun in us and bring it to full completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what greater security and assurance can you imagine than that? The seal that he has secured us with is not merely some impersonal object. It's not merely a piece of paper or a piece of wax. The seal is a person, a person with power, the power to protect and preserve and perform and perfect and prevent in our lives. He is with you, dear brother and sister, every single day. What are you going through right now? Are you tired and discouraged because of the long and weary journey of faith you're walking? The Holy Spirit is in you to remind you not to lose heart. Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Holy Spirit is in you to strengthen you and remind you of that in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Are you feeling tempted by sin? The Holy Spirit is in you to help you resist 
and to tell you that is not the way you learned Christ. Put off your old self. That belongs to your old manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Instead, put on the new self, he tells you. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. The Holy Spirit is in, in you to help you resist sin. Have you fallen into sin and now feel its weight and guilt? The Holy Spirit is, to re, is in you to remind you from First John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... You have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for all your sins. That's what the Holy Spirit in your heart does for you. Are you afraid and anxious about what lies ahead? Hear the Holy Spirit's calming voice reminding you of the words of Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that you can constantly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Hebrews 13, 5. And do you sometimes feel alone and forsaken? Hear the Holy Spirit's voice of assurance from Isaiah 43. Fear not, he says to you, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not over, overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God who speaks to you. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Isaiah 43. So here's a big question for us this morning. Do you experience the Holy Spirit's presence in your life in these ways? Do you experience in him? Do you experience him? When you read the word, is there something in your heart that responds to the voice of your heavenly Father speaking to you? Or is it more like a dry, tasteless history book? When you hear Aaron preaching about the love of Christ for you, how he willingly went to the cross and shed his blood to pay for your sins, does your heart swell in gratefulness? Or is it just same old, same? When you're aware of a specific sin in your life, does it grieve you that you are grieving the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4.30. Or is that prick in your conscience just a nuisance that you want to block out? Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ has been sealed with and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every one of them. And so if you do not experience the Holy Spirit's presence in these ways on a regular basis, or at least a gradually increasing basis, it may be because you've never been born again. You may know a lot about Christ, but you don't know him in a saving way. Teenager, teenagers and young kids 
This is often the case for kids growing up in Christian homes. This is the case for many of us adults who grew up in a Christian home. We, we, th- we thought, yeah, at one point, we thought, oh, yeah, I'm saved. And then come to find out, you know, I've grown up all around it, and yet I am not born again. Very common. It's a sob- sobering thought, isn't it? That we come to church week after week, know all the Sunday school answers, and yet not be born again, not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Now, I don't want to stir up doubts in anyone here who is truly trusting in Christ and is just aware that you don't love Jesus and you don't obey Jesus like you should. I mean, that describes every one of us, right? So we're not talking about a life of perfection. That won't come until we see him face to face. But we're talking about what the New Testament describes as the normal Christian life for all who are born again. And that normal Christian life is the active and experiential presence of his Holy Spirit within us, with whom God has sealed us in Christ. And so this morning, you'd acknowledge that there is little to no evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. The great news this morning is that verse 13 tells you exactly what you need to do. Verse 13 Speaking of the Ephesian believers, it says, when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, right now you are hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then they believed in him. And that's what God calls you to do. Believe in Jesus. Receive all that he has promised to do for you. Receive all these blessings that God promises us in Christ Jesus. Simply by acknowledging your need of him and believing and receiving. Trust in Jesus. Come to him. And you know what? Along with God working faith into your heart, he will also do what he says here in verse 13. He will seal you with the promised Holy Spirit. And then you will begin to hear his voice in the word. You'll respond to God's word. You'll begin to hate your sin and grieve over it. Because this was what the Old Testament promise of the Spirit's coming was. And that promise has been fulfilled to us in the New Covenant. And Ezekiel puts it this way in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Brothers and sisters, all of us need that to happen. And if that has never happened in your life, cry out to God and say, God, I've heard all about you. But I know I don't know Christ personally. Do this miracle in my life. Ask him. Ask him, my friend. God will surely hear your cry. Cry out to him. Give me a new heart. Give me your Holy Spirit. Rescue me. So brothers and sisters, blessings number five and number six of all these magnificent blessings God has given us in Christ. Blessing number five, God has claimed us to be his inheritance. And blessing number six, he has sealed us, secured us 
with his spirit. And giving his spirit to us, God is not just promising our final inheritance, but he's actually giving us right now a foretaste of it, a down payment of it now. But the wonderful thing is, what we experience now is only a fraction, just a fraction of the future reality of all that God has promised. God has blessed us, brothers and sisters. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to join Paul in praising you and blessing you for how you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Father, as we said earlier in the responsive reading, to all that you have done to us for us, we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And Father, we pray again, would you bring, would you do the miracle of the new birth this morning? The lives of those who have perhaps heard this message numerous times and it's never become theirs. Lord, open their hearts, open their eyes, Cause them to be born again that they might receive and embrace Christ as their Savior and their treasure, we pray. In his wonderful name, amen. Amen, brothers and sisters. Thank you. In just a few minutes, we'll have prayer there in the FAA. If you want to pray just for sickness you're dealing with or someone you're caring for. And, um, but you are dismissed. The Lord bless you.